free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com and use the Thousand Movie Project podcast coupon code TMPP to get 50% off of your purchase. Not only that, enter offer code TMPP at checkout and get six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on Thousand Movie Project podcast, cinema. Also, DVDs are just fun. They're vintage now. It's like masturbating to a telegram. Plus, plus, free shipping on the whole thing. Go to adamandeve.com, select the lube, the harness, the dildo of your choice, and enter the offer code TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, for 50% off. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. The bulk of today's episode is a conversation that I had with Steve Donahue in the third week of May, and it's the conversation where I thought we would talk for a long time about Frank Herbert's massive science fiction novel Dune, which came out in 1965 and has a huge cult following, and whose two-part movie adaptation is about to debut this December from director Denis Villeneuve. At the time that we recorded this conversation, I had finally just read Dune, after years of procrastinating. I've known about Dune for as long as I can remember, but I've also been intimidated by science fiction and fantasy. When I was in middle school, I tried reading The Lord of the Rings. I read The Hobbit and then got halfway through Fellowship of the Ring before giving up. Everything in the book was going over my head. And so now, years later, the prospect of reading something even more foreign and more disorienting than The Lord of the Rings, a book like Dune that is renowned for its complexity and for its heavy doses of religious and technological and political jibba-jabba, Dune has always struck me as a monument on par with War and Peace and the Brothers Karamazov, and so I never attempted it. I bought a copy like six years ago, this chunky 800-page mass-market paperback with a daunting all-black cover, but I just never got around to it. If you're listening to this conversation with Steve, you probably also heard the one we recorded a few weeks ago, where the topic of Villeneuve's new adaptation came up and Steve got pretty heated while talking about how one of the novel's lead characters, Liet Kynes, is being gender-swapped for the adaptation. Steve has been a fan of the novel since it first came out, and he's sympathetic to prospective readers who say that the book's opening pages are just too forbiddingly complicated to rope them in, but it just so happened that the outset of this coronavirus quarantine, where I suddenly have great spools of time available to me, I also got a reading bug. The reading bug is a kind of spell that comes over me every couple months where I can sit somehow for several hours at a time and focus on one book, plow through it, pick up another, on and on and on. The reading bug is wonderful, and it usually lasts three or four weeks and gets me through seven books, something like that. So I found myself with a ton of free time, I had the reading bug, Steve had just been riffing about Dune, and so I thought, okay, the stars have aligned, now's the time for me to read this book. The writer Jonathan Franzen said in his first essay collection that if it's taken you more than two weeks to read a book, you probably haven't read it. And that's kind of an arbitrary number, obviously. Something similar to that is when the novelist Mark Weingartner, or Gardner, he said that you should read 300 novels for every one novel that you write. Remarks like this are too weirdly specific to hold much weight, and yet, both of those ideas do hold some weight. You definitely should read a lot of books before you try to write one, and you do lose something from reading a book if it takes you a really long time to get through it. So Dune is 800 pages. 800 notoriously difficult pages. And so I was thinking, shit, I've got to read this in two weeks somehow, which I thought would be difficult because the book is so forbidding, science fiction is not really my cup of tea. But then I remembered, no, I, I have to read it faster than two weeks because it's something that I don't want to be reading. 
all due respect to the novel and its author and its fans, I'm just not interested in this book, and I have a, this, I have a very mercurial attention span. If I'm ever going to force myself to read a novel or watch a series or do a chore that I don't want to do, I know myself and I know that I, I, I need to do the whole thing very quickly, or else I just won't finish. So I was like, okay, I've got to read this 800-page book, not in two weeks, but in one week. So I sat down with it uh, one Sunday, and I managed to read about 100 pages, and I was surprised with myself. And then I went on to read 100 pages a day, and on the eighth day, when I was one sitting away from being done with the whole book, I was feeling a kind of last-mile fatigue, and I was thinking, if this book turns out to be just 10 pages longer than I thought it was, I'm probably not going to make it. And yet, the book was really, really good. That, and that's what's so weird. I'm not sure if it's really that I do have some kind of natural, ingrained allergy to science fiction and fantasy, or if I've just conditioned myself to think that I do. A book that's totally devoid of, like, familiar cultural touchstones. I don't feel like I'm escaping my reality, which is that prized feeling that so many people celebrate when they talk about reading fiction. I feel, instead, exiled from my reality. Nothing makes sense. It's all so disorienting. And yet... I really liked Dune. I was gripped, I was interested to see where the story was going, but for some reason I'm reluctant to say that I really loved it. And even though I found the story gripping, I was prepared to put the book down at any given moment. It wasn't like I would get a phone call while reading the book and I'd say to myself, I'll let it go to voicemail and then I'll call them back when I'm done with this chapter. No, I took every distraction that came my way and then I got back to the book at my leisure. This is kind of a crude analogy, but at one point in college, I was dating somebody who was really big on buying stuff from Adam and Eve. The retailer, I can proudly say, is now the, po the sponsor of this podcast. And so she had all these sex toys and stuff, and she was really into collecting kinks, which is a whole story on its own. But one time, we were in my dorm, and she pulls out this kind of reusable friction tape. When you pull it tight, it clings to itself, and then it pulls apart when you relax it a little. It's for sex, basically. It's a way of tying up your partner that's more discreet than having ropes hanging from your headboard for everyone to see. And one of the things she liked playing around with was, like, like surrendering power and being submissive, but she had a really strong, authoritative personality. And so, and so she pulls out this roll of purple tape, and she's like, tie me to the bed. So I tie her to the headboard, and I'm like, how's that? And she's like, you're not supposed to ask me. <laughs> like, super curt and authoritative. Anyway, so she's tied to the headboard, we do our thing, and then at the end of it, I do my, no, I do my normal post-coital thing where I grab my sternum with both hands and I pretend to be a cowboy who's just been shot. It's really hilarious, you should see it sometime. <laughs> so I, I collapse beside her like a gut-shot kettle hand, and she just lowers her hands from the headboard and sits right up and brings her wrists down into her lap and starts unstrapping them. And I was like, how did you do that? How did you untie yourself from the headboard? And she said, because you didn't tie me to the headboard. I don't know how to describe the way that this misunderstanding happened. I thought I had tied her hands together with one of the headboard's slats between her wrists, but instead I had put both of her wrists between two slats and then tied them there. The point is that her wrists were tied, but they were free from the headboard. And yet, all through the act, she just kept her hands there as though she were tied to the headboard. And I said, why, if you knew it, I hadn't done it right, why didn't you tell me to do it again? And she just shrugged and she was like, everything else was fine, I was gonna stay put anyway, you looked pretty focused. And that last part is true. I need to concentrate when I'm doing the coitus. To give you an idea of what I look like during sex, go tell some kid that you'll give him $100 if he can wash your whole car in 30 seconds, then start the clock before he's even agreed to do it, <laughs> and watch him scramble. But anyway, the headboard thing came to mind when I was reading Dune because the chapters were engaging enough that my hands were kind of tied. I was definitely surrendering myself completely to a charming storyteller. I was sitting tight, but I wasn't tied to the headboard. I was prepared to get up at any point, which is far from the sort of rigid attentiveness I was experiencing a couple months ago when I was rereading Thomas Harris's whole Hannibal Lecter series and going through half a book or a whole book in a single sitting. Thomas Harris tied me to a headboard. 
Frank Herbert did not. Really, what fueled me through Dune is that I wanted to be part of the cultural conversation, which is bound to explode once those movies come out this winter, but I also wanted to be able to riff about it here with Steve, since he's such a devoted fan and has a penchant for talking about things that I'm totally unfamiliar with. And I tried. I told him that I'd read it. Uh, there were some digressions into the subject of Dune, but it's clear after a while that I just didn't like Dune enough to spar with him about it or to even really enthuse about the book. Reading Dune was the first time in a while that I really wanted to love something, and I gave it a huge amount of effort and time, and I ended up just being kind of meh about it. And I don't mean meh in the sense that, like, I'm looking down on the book. Dune, as a novel, is clearly a remarkable achievement. But for me, it's kind of like looking at Mount Rushmore. If I met the dude who chiseled Mount Rushmore, the guy who used his hands to chisel the faces of four men he'd never met 60 feet tall into the side of a mountain, I'd be like, Sir, I cannot pretend to know why you've done what you've done but I am very impressed. Because you could just light an artist up with questions in a situation like that. Questions like, why did you do this? Do you have a crush on these men? It's easy to approach a masterpiece, a sprawling, indulgent masterpiece like Dune and just chuck questions at it. You can get pissy about its complexity and ask why it needs to be so difficult and why is it so dense. But it seems like a nobler and more respectful human response to just say, whether we're talking about Dune or Mount Rushmore, just say, look, this is a monument and it was not made to appease me. It's a miraculous human achievement, and for that, we doff the cap. Cheers, Keith. And with that, I'm joined now by the book critic, YouTuber, Steve Donahue. Um, I did finally read Dune. Uh, I started last Sunday, and I finished this morning. And as I was going through it, I was, read I was reading along with your Dune read-along from 2019, uh, which... You made in four videos, right? Do you remember Dune two? Um, and yeah, yes. and then you did Messiah. I did everything except I the last one. I get reminded of that all the time that I didn't do the last book. <laughs> yeah. I ran out of time. Wait, did you do? I saw with Children of Dune. There's only two videos. Did you finish with that? No, I did Children. I did all of them except Chapter House. Okay, I didn't do Chapter House okay. Dune, which is weird because I love Chapter House, but I ran out of time. Of your of your videos, I think my favorite series or the fam my favorite thread of what you've done so far is the Penguin, the Daily Penguin, and then the second thing, my second favorite is the Brattle Book Halls because you, they tend to be books about which you've already cultivated an opinion. Yeah. First of all, an opinion of the book, and then you haven't read it in years, so you have a contextualized opinion, and then you you start talking about what you're going to be looking for when you revisit it. But we, to my surprise, my I think my third favorite was when you did that month of reading like a Star Trek novel a day? Or was it a Star Trek novel a week? Oh, that's right. <laughs> I forgot I know nothing. That. I know nothing of Star Trek. I've never seen a full episode in my life, but I've, I have conscious, I've deliberately listened to and watched dozens of hours of Star Trek commentary on YouTube. And I love the document, the Trekkies documentaries. Um, what? There's something about, did you say? He, he, what did you say? Did you? Oh, I've never seen an episode of Star Trek. There it is again. What <laughs> did those words mean? It's like you're sitting there with your high-tech earphones on saying, well, actually, I don't know anything about Christianity. I've never really heard about it. What are some, is it like a, a bowling team? <laughs> You've never seen an episode of Star Trek. No, I've seen you know flashes here and there. I don't know what it is about Star Trek that I love hearing people's impassioned commentary. And even though I don't know any, I don't know very much about the premise of it. If someone posts a twelve-page, feverish, unpunctuated screed, and the title is <laughs> "Spock would never say that," I read the whole thing and I enjoy it. 
And I found with Rise of Skywalker, I could not muster the interest to go out and see it, but I watched at least four or five hours of people just arguing about it. And I have also been guilty of extensive unpunctuated commentary on Star Trek. <laughs> oh, what did I just... Oh, in your 7K Q&A just this week, you went on a, a screed about Star Trek Discovery. Yes, um, which Trek I don't Discovery know and Star Trek who Picard. likes. No, there isn't anybody that likes it. No, there isn't anybody who likes it. And the reason why there isn't anybody who likes it is because it was made for people who don't like Star Trek. It was, it was made specifically sculpted for people who are very good at calling you a racist on social media, but if you say to them, oh, okay, you've been complaining nonstop because apparently your boss at work is okay with you being on Twitter for 12 hours every day, but you've been complaining nonstop that Star Trek is patriarchal, that it's sexist, that there's no representation, that there's no diversity, and you're calling our studio all the time, and you've called my wife at her job as a medical practitioner, and you've called the superintendents of my children's <laughs> schools. You've done. You're clearly insane, and you're never going to stop. So you must be very disgruntled Star Trek fans. Okay. We, as a multi-billion dollar corporation, are for some completely unaccountable reason afraid of you. So we are going to tailor an entire Star Trek franchise around all the things you want. So you'll have nothing to complain about. And then it comes out, and it's met by incredible vitriolic hostility from all the people who are Star Trek fans. And I noticed it's total silence from you. You're not boosting it on the social media where you are 12 hours a day. You're not going to see it. You're certainly not increasing its ratings. And I'm wondering if you don't mind me, if you don't think it's too Islamophobic of me, I'm wondering why that is. Why are you invisible when it comes to supporting this thing we made so that you would leave my, our children alone. And what is the answer that these people hear? Oh, we don't like Star Trek. <laughs> these people, these modern day 21st century Puritan censors have been compared many times by the neck bearded manosphere on YouTube to a swarm of locusts, but they're worse than that. They're worse than that. Imagine a swarm of locusts that darkens the sky, comes from the horizon in a huge buzzing noise, heading towards the crops you need to live. And you're on your knees praying to to Dalgoda or to Baal or to Osiris that the, that the, the locust swarm will pass you by and it doesn't. Instead, the locusts land on your crops, the whole field. Massive numbers of locusts land on your crops and you watch as they tear those crops apart. And then you watch as every single one of those millions of locusts goes <laughs> your crops are still destroyed. It's the only way they're actually the only way that these people could be worse than a swarm of locusts is the way they're worse, which is that they're destroying something they have no interest in at all. The only thing they care about is the ability to destroy the franchise and also the ability to get you to do it what they want. That which is we we shouldn't underestimate the incredible narcotic effectiveness of that. Once you realize that you have the power to get somebody to do what you want through fear, through through terrorism literal terrorism in other words i'm going to make you do what i want because of fear that can be very narcotic that can that can be habit forming and i believe that it's worked on these 21st century puritan censors they've they've be, they've realized that they can cause this to happen and so they go from franchise to franchise like a crowd of vegan locusts locusts who aren't interested in your food that they, they don't want to eat your crops they just want to destroy them 
and then there'll be nothing more for them to do, so they'll move on. But I don't want to spew. <laughs> the, the point that I'm trying to make is the point that I've been making since the McCarthy era. The only thing you should do with these people is mercilessly fight them. There is no appeasing this kind of thing. They're drug addicts. They're, they're, they only want the hit of making you do what they say. They must be resisted. I don't know why it's taken this long. I really don't know why it's taken this long. I don't know why it's cost this much. I mean, Disney is is set to lose what upwards of a trillion dollars on Star Wars. Star Wars. It's practically a license to print money. And and everybody in the executive C suite of of Lucasfilm Star Wars has to know the reason. I don't know why this has been allowed to continue as long as it has. And what are we seeing now? That the Marvel Cinematic Universe is about to do that. It's about to do the same thing. What they could be looking at as their as their model, I have no idea. You look at one franchise after another. They they tried, they they made scrapped their product in order to appease people who are not fans. And what happened? Not only did the neckbearded, you know, YouTube trolls who are a portion of the fandom, they're not the whole fandom, but a portion of the fandom, not only did they mobilize to attack your product and and drive down box office sales, but no new people were brought on board. The other night I was talking with a friend who's going through The Sopranos for the first time, and I really like The Sopranos. I imagine you don't. I don't. I don't like it, of course. I don't. I, of course I don't like wouldn't it be cool if we could shoot people who disappoint mm-hmm. us? Of course, I don't like it. it's a, a show that goes on for our 18 seasons or whatever it was, whose only point is, wouldn't it be great if we could shoot people we don't like? Of course, I don't like that. Of course, I think that is just pure, uh, just a pure block of idiotic male machismo that's just been served up on a plate. Uh, I'm sorry, I ordered uh, a salad and the main course in addition to this quivering gelatinous block of male machismo, but I've only got the block. Yeah, take it. <laughs> it's, it's not only that I don't like that it's also that I don't think people are right when they say that they really like it which sounds very presumptuous of me but I do know all <laughs> I believe that when people say that they love The Sopranos what they're saying is they love James Galfini's, Gandolfini's performance as Tony Soprano and I agree that his performance as Tony Soprano is incredible I agree with that his performance as Tony Soprano is incredible. No one else in the show is even good, much less incredible. And the writing, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> it just kills me. It, it, it kills me how many young men I know who love the Sopranos and also call themselves writers. When, when Take him out of it. Okay, take him out of the show. Pick, pick uh, I don't know. Pick somebody who would who would not be good in his role in The Sopranos, or who would be average, who would be only good, who wouldn't give a scintillating performance. Um, Paul Servino. Imagine Paul Servino as Tony Soprano, where there's nothing that rises above the Italian mob stereotype, where there is no none of those glints of a darker turmoil inside, because Servino couldn't do that. Picture just him as just an ordinary suburban tracksuit wearing mob boss an ordinary actor doing tony soprano picture that and leave everything else in the sopranos the same and what do you have you have exactly what you would expect from a tv drama about a mobster 
that's exactly what you get. Nothing memorable at all. That's my theory. My theory is that when people say they love The Sopranos, what they're saying is they love James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano and not anything else. Where is the acting anywhere else? Where is the acting in his lieutenants that uh, that you get a, a drunk group of 20 somethings in, in their in their couches with their with their hookahs and they, you you put the sopranos on in front of them and all of a sudden everybody starts divvying up parts oh i'm him oh i'm him well, there's no different characters are exactly the same except that you're wondering which one of them might get might get tony angry enough to order him killed this season but not anything none of them do anything in or out of character at any point it's uh, <laughs> yeah it's a waste of time if your friend is re-watching the sopranos it's a waste of time no he's seeing it for the first time i have rewatched the sopranos though well, um, you should intervene with your friend yourself you may be beyond hope but you you should intervene with your friend when your friend says yeah so i'm gearing up i'm all i'm almost ready i'm gonna start i'm gonna do it one episode every night until i get through the whole thing the next time your friend does that, you should intervene and say, John Ford Westerns. You haven't watched even one. You don't even know who I'm talking about. John Ford Westerns. Instead of The Sopranos. <laughs> and when you're done with John Ford Westerns, <laughs> then watch the first episode of The Sopranos and you'll be cured. You won't want to watch the rest of them. You won't want to re-watch them watch something good first and then see it's the same route that i always take with people who think that haruki murakami is the greatest thing that's ever come out of japan including godzilla <laughs> i tell these people okay well you say he's the greatest thing to come out of the japanese literary scene okay name me another japanese writer you've read and some of them and most of them just look at me blankly like there are others but every once in a while one of them will say um amy tan <laughs> they don't know anything about the people that he's ripping off and palely imitating <clears throat> and my my approach over the decades has always been rather than harangue as i'm doing right now <laughs> my approach over the decades has been i'm going to give you a, a novel by soseki or tanizaki all i want you to do is read it before you read another murakami and i just trust that they will be able to do that. You should tell your friend, John Ford Westerns, just have him watch one and then maybe watch two. But, but anyway, I, you're probably going to make a point. You're, you're going to make a case for the Sopranos. Is that what you're going to do? No, I was going in one direction, but you, 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 you constantly grab the steering wheel. Um, you've you've watched The Sopranos more than once in the same conversation yes. where you're admitting that you've <clears throat> never seen an episode of Star Trek. Yes. Oh, well, because I was thinking like, okay, that was going in one direction. But as for the Ford thing, I've seen several Ford movies, and I maintain that The Sopranos is terrific. Have you heard the story that Spielberg tells about meeting John Ford? No. It was very brief. He was in his late 20s, I think. And um, he was in a production office. Um, and he mentioned to somebody that he really liked John Ford. And the guy said, well, Ford's office is right down there. He just got back from lunch. Why don't you go talk to him? So someone, someone arranged it, and Spielberg goes in, and Ford is behind his desk um, with his eye patch and his feet on the desk. And he says, so I hear you want to be a picture maker. And Spielberg said he'd never heard that word before, but he said, yeah, that's what I want to do. So Ford had along his walls a number of 
kind of Louis L'Amour cover type paintings, almost paint by number type, you know, Western vistas. And he said, okay, let me teach you something. Look at this painting and what do you see? And so Spielberg looks at it and he says, uh, well, I see some ranchers and they appear to be doing, and Ford says, no, 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 no. Where's the horizon? And Spielberg says, it's up at the top right here. And Ford says, go to the next one. What do you see? And Spielberg says, well, it appears to be some natives. They're building a campfire. And he says, no, 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 no. Where's the horizon? And he says, it's right down here at the bottom. And uh, Ford goes, exactly. Once you can explain to me why the horizon's at the top and why it's at the bottom in different scenes, then you'll know how to be a picture maker. Now get the fuck out of my office. Mm. Sounds like a Spielberg anecdote. <laughs> oh, you don't? Oh, I no, well, I read Scott Eyman's uh, biography of Ford. That sounds like a... Yes, but it also like sounds like story. a Spielberg anecdote. It, I think it? he has one of those for meeting Cecil B. DeMille as well. <laughs> and, oh, really? And, or, and you notice in the Spielberg anecdote, there's one painting, and then there's a second, and there's no third, because the coming of Christ is... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's it's the, the, the unspoken the unspoken final bit of dialogue in most Spielberg anecdotes about meeting the old greats, whether it's Orson Welles or anybody else is all is always get out of my office and outdo me. <laughs> Thou shalt. I, I have here this, um, 50th anniversary edition of, um, 10 commandments that I watched for the project. And in it, there's a six part documentary just about Cecil B. DeMille. And, you know, implicit in that is the production of 10 commandments, but it's total hagiography. And they're making these remarks about like, oh, you know, he wasn't angry. He wasn't hard to deal with. But then they mentioned casually that he had a heart attack <laughs> on the set, probably because he was yeah. going on tirades. And there, there's one Screaming. anecdote where he deliberate, yeah, where he deliberately humiliates two teenage girls. He sees them, you know, they're one of a thousand extras and he calls them on the bullhorn because they're talking as he's talking. And he has them come up to the megaphone and say, why don't you tell everyone what you were talking about? Why don't you just, you know, because it's clearly so important. We're trying to humiliate these girls. And allegedly one of them said, we were just wondering when that bald son of a bitch is going to let us go to lunch. Anecdote being, he allowed them. <laughs> he had a sense of humor, presumably. But I was also going to ask you, Brian Herbert mentions in the afterword for Dune that he wrote a biography, Dreamer of Dune. Yes. And so I looked at it on Kindle, on the Kindle store, and there's a very useful, helpful, comprehensive review at the top where a guy is saying it is kind of hagiographic. Is that the case? Is it worth reading? I gobbled it up when it was a mass market. It wasn't satisfying. No, I don't imagine there's a whole lot of dirt on Frank Herbert, but but, but even so, well, the tone could son, have been yeah. a little more. No, right, right. I I uh, had the great the great pleasure of speaking with Frank Herbert. <laughs> so, oh so yeah, when... he he was he was doing a tour for some. I think it was probably God Emperor of Dune. He was in Boston, and there was a. There was a used bookstore in Boston uh, that whose owner knew everybody and had known everybody, and there was a back room in that used bookstore. Uh, that that's where lunches were held, and they would go on for some time, sometimes. And I was working at a bookstore in the time I just I would go there for lunch and just soak up the atmosphere. <laughs> and and all kinds of authors showed up back there. This guy knew everybody. And Frank Herbert was was wonderful to talk to. He, he, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would believe that a biography of him would be largely very wonderful, largely the biography of a wonderful person. But I don't know how much of that is. I, I imagine that Brian Herbert controls a lot of that. 
So we'll probably have to wait for that kind of a biography, I would think. Uh, oh, that's right. He's still he, well. He's not still doing Dune novels, is he? Yeah, I think he is. He is still oh, doing. Okay. Uh, there was one last year, I think. There was. I can't mm. bear to read them. So I read the first like twenty, but I can't bear to read them. So I don't know if maybe that series has stopped. Uh, but well, I, I did a quick gloss, and it looks like prequel. They all have these parenthetical things: prequel series, sequel series. Yeah. Um, the, the, his main goal, I think, was uh, horrible, and that was to blur the distinction between the, his father's books and his own in the reading public's mind. And that has worked. That has absolutely worked. Even in a book-conscious area like the book booktube area of YouTube, you will often hear young people say, God, I don't know where to start with all these Dune novels. There's so many of them. Where do I even begin? As though the the... the the 20 books that Brian Herbert wrote are the same as the books that his father wrote. Same thing is true with Jeff Shara's continuation of his father's Civil War novels. People, I've lost count of how many people have said, well, you know, The Killer Angels is about the Battle of Gettysburg. Surely I should read the Shara novel about the early parts of the war. And I say, no, no, no. That's Those are the son's books. They're, you, a conscious effort on a marketing department has been made to make you think this is all just one enormous glut of books. That isn't true. I'd be more hesitant of making that point to people if there weren't such a drastic difference in the execution quality. But there is. There is, absolutely. So. <sighs> that reminds me, I, ju I just put in a request for the new Martin Amis novel, which comes out in September, and it's autofiction about his friendship with Christopher Hitchens. Yes. Um, and every time he's spoken up about it in public, he sounds like a tormented 20-something. Like, it seems like he's very earnestly saying, I don't know if this is any good. Yeah. I, he, you are, you're right. He uh, sounds different about it than he ever has about anything that he's ever written. I'm hoping that the way he sounds about this book is a reflection of it being a completely different compositional process. In which case... My prediction is that it will be great, that it, that it will be a great book. I will overlook the autofiction elements if if it is. Uh, but what, did you get a response to the request? No. I, no, and I was thinking maybe I should – I see Penguin UK is releasing it a couple of weeks earlier than in the U.S., and I was thinking maybe maybe five months is just too far in advance to be asking for this. Um so maybe I should ask the UK, send an email there, see if I can get an e-copy. Because yeah. they have cover art. It's not like one of those blank slates. Yeah, I, that that the publishing industry has changed now because of the pandemic to the point where, I mean, if, if things are, if there's no such thing as a release for different countries anymore because there are no physical books, because there are no physical bookstores, then oh, yeah. the UK release will be the release of the book. Why wouldn't it be? If you're buying it online anyway, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how that's going to work. I have no idea. I'm still I'm still well, thinking. There, I'm flashing back to your to your uh, anecdote about about him about the director having a heart attack on set. <laughs> I'm still I'm yeah. still flashing back to that. I'm remembering I'm remembering that that moment has been caught in a number of different memoirs and biographies and whatnot from a number of different angles, and I'm remembering all of those stories. Now they all have one element in common, which is that which no is. one seemed alarmed. It wasn't anything that that you have you have these dozens of people all around actors he's known for years, assistant directors, 
grip boys, camera directors, everybody, all these people, and no one was, oh, no. <laughs> no one was. It, the reactions, for, you see it from all these different angles and all these different memoirs, and the one thing that's missing is concern. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that, that all of you said, ah, look, he's having a heart attack. We should probably call the doctor. <laughs> it remind, I, I'm thinking about those anecdotes. I'm remembering two things. One, the look on the faces of all of these enormous Texas sides of beef police officers when Oswald was shot. And again, you're looking at this whole crowd of people and they're going, oh, he's shot. <laughs> to see to that i never paid attention to that and i have i have firsthand experience of that because i worked in a bookstore once where we got a new manager and she was a monster an, an absolute monster hated living things hated people hated her employees with a special vitriol hated the customers hated the vendors hated the shipping clerks hated everybody one day a blind customer paid at the registers and then said, could someone here please lead me down out of the store and down the stairs to the sidewalk? And this manager said, I'm sorry, I can't spare anyone. Which is a violation, not just of oh my God. American law and basic Christianity, but of every moral code that has ever existed, not only in humans, but in any hominid species. I completely ignored her and walked the blind person down to the sidewalk. And a year later, that manager had a heart attack on the sales floor. And it was the exact same thing. 30 different people, 30 different employees just going, oh, oh she's keeled over. We should call somebody. <laughs> no, no alarm at all. Oh my God, no, it's too soon. <laughs> just, just, no, no, it's like you. Looks like it's real. She's having a heart attack, going blue in the face. We should probably call somebody. It's just, I cannot imagine what it would be like to live your life in such a way that that would happen. Well, you you also mentioned um, Tanizaki. I haven't read Tanizaki, and all I know of him is about the key. And it's because there's a wonderful short film, I don't know if you've ever seen it, about Henry Miller. And he's just in his bathrobe, in his bathroom, just sermonizing. Did you say... That you've never read Tanizaki? I've not. I tried to get the key because I was in college at the time and they had no Tanizaki. That was another thing I wanted to ask you because while I was there, they had one of those coveted one of 3,000 um, William T. Volman unabridged, Rising Up and Rising Down. Did you ever get a copy of that? The I box set? Well, I, I did. I got a copy of it. Yeah, I didn't keep it. <laughs> so mine okay. is out in the wild again. Okay. And I don't know why I bothered. I don't know why I tried so hard. Maybe you were the reason. But I tried so hard. Uh, we didn't know each other at that time. Oh, that must be why you spent so much time at college, apparently not seeing, not watching, not reading <laughs> X, Y, and Z. I'm not sure that you went to college. <laughs> you know what? I'm not either. Oh, I was just going to say, what do you do all day? But you probably work all day. Don't you? Not at the moment. No, not since I got laid off. And, well, the restaurant wouldn't be open anyways. But, um... No, lately I've just been editing that book that I wrote and working on the podcast, and all, all week I've been reading Dune and watching supplementary material in order to hold my attention. Not because Dune is distracting, but it's just, it's so out of my element, and I think I'm just generally insecure about my intelligence, and so I know when I go into these kinds of books with lots of world building, you're supposed to be disoriented for a little bit. And I never know how disoriented I'm supposed to be, 
So I start thinking like, oh my God, I'm just an idiot. I'm not understanding this. In Dune, Herbert takes that to an extreme level, an extreme level. And yet the family dynamic is so tight. And I think, I was wondering, I think part of what helps is that at least 500 pages take place in the course of 72 hours, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a very, it's a crawl of the timescale until it's very it jumps. Tight. It's kind of, it's kind of yes. ironic that the, the timescale between the third book and the fourth book is thousands of years <laughs> in between children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune, thousands of years pass. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's just, God Emperor is my favorite Dune book. And, and I just love that. Just loved it. <laughs> you like it more than the original or it's your oh, favorite yeah. of the sequels? No, it's my favorite. Of them all, I like it. I love. I love it and, dearly. But in even in even in the whole of Dune, even when you're done with the whole of Dune, there's still huge things that he doesn't explain at any point in the book. So you're not alone in reading it and thinking, "Boy, I'm just getting clobbered by this world building." I mean, to this day, how many Dune fans can tell you the precise mechanics of comb or the Bini Tailaksu or anything like that. How many how many Dune fans can tell you how that all works? Um, I still I skipped all of the epigrams from Princess Irulan. Why? Um, Two seconds to read. Why would you skip them? Every you now and then, some of the chunkier <laughs> some of the chunkier ones were disorienting, and it was kind of like I kind of knew I needed to read this book quickly, or else my mind would wander. Um, and so, I don't know, it just felt like a disruption of the momentum. Or your mind would wander? Yeah, because sci-fi, because as it is, I was so dispirited every time I would, I would, you know, wade through some passage, and there's some orgy of consonants in a single word that I cannot pronounce. Um, and it was, so, it was so disheartening. You were worried um, while you were reading Doom that your mind would yeah. wander. Yeah. <laughs> wander to what? What could it wander um, to that would be more wander positive than do? I've got I've got a lineup of things that I want to read. Things, but that's the thing. I'm so okay. So I was trying to take inventory of this when I was talking. I was writing something about Dune today to try to just get my thoughts down. And like, I can't blanketly say that I don't like fantasy and I don't like science fiction because a good story is a good story. And there are many examples from both of those arenas where I can think, okay, I had a good time with this. Actually, and then I realized on second thought when it comes to like sword and sandal wizardry high fantasy i can't think of one that's really captured me when i was in middle school i enjoyed the lord of the rings movies i, d I read the hobbit and fellowship i didn't make it to two towers um it's j i don't know what it is it's it's almost it's almost like an intellectual allergy where oh there's there's a recoiling and i know it's absurd but there's a legit recoiling i couldn't make it through the first game of thrones books um I watched the first two seasons because I was dating someone who insisted. There was That was essentially four plays. We had to watch two episodes of Game of Thrones. But I've never really been able to get into high fantasy of any kind. Sci-fi, yes. And I just forced some friends to watch RoboCop. And, oh, that was actually another thing I was going to ask you. My roommate and I, on a whim the other day, rewatched Predator. And it, which I think is such a great movie i don't know if you would call it sci-fi but it made me wonder who is sure you what's would. your favorite what's your favorite movie monster i know literary wise i, I would imagine it would be dracula or is that just the I, novel that you like not so much the character we're gonna have to rename this whole podcast we're gonna have instead of thousand movie project we can just call it steve is appalled by me 
<laughs> we'll do Steve is appalled by me part one, part 20 your voice will get more and more dispirited finally a year from now it'll be alright we're on Steve is appalled by me part 300 <laughs> those of you who are wondering spoiler alert he's still appalled by me <laughs> which part of that is appalling the fantasy I've lost count just in the last five minutes you 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 were worried that your mind would wander while you were reading Dune. Not because the material was bad, and I was really surprised by the fact that, like... And it's all me. It's not one you of these things. Like, the I Lord know of sometimes... the when you were a puling little child, and you haven't gone back to it. It's... <laughs> yeah, and I've been thinking of wanting to do that because of your read-along. Not only that, but I was like, I would like to watch your read-along from here and compare it to the read-along you did, I think, in, like, 2016 or 17. Um, well, the one I just did a read along of the Lord of the Rings in one month, one one book right. per week. That's far less detailed than the one I did before. A few years ago, the, yeah. The one I did before was very detailed, just yeah. you know, a chunk at a time. And I could do one that's much lower. I could do one that's a chapter at a time. <laughs> so that's how much I love it. Yeah, you had a lot to say, but because I did watch it at the time. But you haven't, I hadn't you haven't read, read the Once of Juju King by T. H. White. No, and I saw you just mention that as one of your most freak, most reread books. Of your life? Yes. It is great. It is absolutely great. The Once of Future King and the Book of Merlin. The sort of PS to the Once of Future King is... I, I love the Once of Future King. The Book of Merlin may be my, one of my favorite works of fantasy ever written. Just on its own. Apart from the Lord of the, of the Once of Future King. But, but what, what did you... You asked about my favorite monster? Movie monster, yeah. My favorite movie monster. Oh, because oh, you were talking about Predator. I'm assuming that you haven't seen Predator 2. I have, and I think it is grievously underrated. I love it. I love that movie I think it's so great. much. <laughs> <laughs> There's no whole... stopping what can be stopped. This thing is from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> He's in town with a few days to kill. <laughs> that was the monster. He's in town with a few days to kill. I hope that the person who came up with that just was given a mansion. Just here, you can have a mansion. That is the best <laughs> play on words in a poster that we're ever going to get. So here, you can have a mansion. <laughs> He's in town with a few days to kill. <laughs> Entirely free of the silly portentousness of the first movie. I mean, the first movie has a couple of good moments, but the second one is just pure predator goodness. Pure. Ugh. What I found so instructive about those two movies when I was writing my little stories when I was a kid was um, it doesn't, there's no exposition really about the nature of the predator. You're just supposed to sort of deduce things. And I remember always being very struck, kind of mesmerized when I was like 10 or 11 by the, the final scene in Predator 2 on the spaceship where you see their shelf of trophies and there's no explanation. But you're just prompted to deduce, okay? They're clearly hunting, and they have the sense of currency, a sense of honor. Um, yeah, it isn't laid out. You're not beaten over the head with it. It's, it's uh, right. But you didn't. I I didn't answer your question. My favorite movie monster is yes. Nancy Reagan. Okay, who's your second favorite movie monster? Probably be cheap to say Jane Wyman. Okay, but yes, Jane Wyman <laughs> and Nancy Reagan aside. I was thinking you you would have a thing, a fondness for um, Geiger's xenomorph. 
No? Not really, no. Maybe maybe uh, The Mummy. That was, uh, what's his name? Uh, Adam Vuslu is the actor who oh, I don't know. Does, a, does a fantastic job. I remember oh, it's Steven Somers. I remember being so happy with the fact that that movie never lost its sense of humor, that it never became yeah. plotting. Even when it was serious, it still was, it still had a wink in its eye. I loved that. At the, the point when the, the mummy is slowly reconstituting his flesh with beetles under, under his, moving around under his flesh. And when one of them gets too close to his mouth, he chops on it and just chews it in the scene. I thought, okay, that was, you're meant to laugh at that. But this is also a horrifying moment. <laughs> It had a good chapter in a book that you sent me. I don't know if you got around to it before you sent it to me. Um, an advanced copy of Best Movie Year Ever, about 1999. Oh, right. No, I never did get that. I just they had a big right away. Yeah, you sent me your copy, I guess. The old days when I got books in the mail and when I sent them in the mail. I don't do either of that anymore. Yeah. I noticed your book halls are one or two titles. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And also, I, I have a whole bookcase that's full of review copies. And I separate them out month by month by month. And I have the current month up on the top. And as we get closer to the end of every month, I gather up the few remaining books from the top shelf, move them, and then move everything up. And I did that today. I moved June's books up to the top shelf today. And the bottom shelves of that bookcase are empty. There are no books to fill in a couple of months. Are you going to go to the monitor? If you go to the monitor. Oh, really? Yeah. Everything's shut down. If I went there, I could start to replenish. I imagine if there's been mail, but maybe there hasn't been mail. No, I think I think it's far more likely that in a couple of months I'm going to have a new bookcase. <laughs> there's going to be there's just going to be nothing there. I don't know what it'll uh, all be electronic. I guess. It'll just all be Miami electronic. kind of open today. Miami had a soft open today. What is so that? a certain num- a certain number of restaurants are open for fifty percent capacity. Um, a few more retail stores open. Movie theaters are not. Bowling alleys are not. Bars are not. But a lot of restaurants that have bars in them are. I don't know if that means you can't sit at the bar. It's kind. Of, there have been a bunch of memes on the Miami meme pages on Instagram talking about how this all the rules are so arbitrary. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. How could, what difference does it make if you have 50% capacity at a restaurant? You're sitting there. You're, you're sitting there for an hour. You're being yeah. served food that's been handled and breathed on by people who you don't know and who have contact with people you don't know. What difference does it make? You're fifty percent capacity. If you were gonna the the change that would make sense, at least from a biological standpoint, although not from a business standpoint, would not to re, be to reduce capacity by fifty percent, but to say uh, you can fill the place to capacity, but people can only stay for fifteen minutes each. <laughs> that, that that doesn't work either. I mean, what about, I mean, just, just, just you, just personally, would you be comfortable eating at a restaurant? No. No. And are people going to be, do you think? And what is the impression that you get? I don't, I don't know. I haven't walked by any of those businesses today when I walked to that window to get a sandwich, which I've done a dozen times over the course of the quarantine. Um, The roads were packed. Really? Um, I wasn't seeing more. Yeah, I wasn't seeing more wow. people on the street. The Goodwill that is uh, two blocks from my apartment is opening on Wednesday. Um, they have That's a designated good. senior hour between nine and ten a.m. Only people over the age of sixty-five are going to be allowed inside, and um, otherwise, I think it's going to be normal operating hours. Oh my! You must go and get yeah. me books. I was also thinking when I went there, I would get a desk chair because I'm sitting on some horrible rigid ikea thing and i've noticed lately i've been really fetishizing 
workspaces. And I know, thank God, like in the in twentieth century American literary culture, there's been so much photography of writers' workspaces. Louis L'Amour has a very interesting one. I just saw Sylvester Stallone post some video online where you could see his workspace in his home office, and it's so I'm important. just jonesing for. I'm jonesing it's for so big desk. I've seen yours. Yours and looks very, very. I don't know. Minimal and. But the, sort the, of, Louis Lamour's workspace did not start chaotic, and he wouldn't have called it chaotic. His started out with a, be a bench, a desk, and a chair, and then stuff was added, papers, books, this sort of thing added. That works. The other way doesn't work. To start with crap-ass random chaos doesn't work. That doesn't work. You're working against your own creativity when you do that. I'd be willing to bet my last Boston cream pie, that your current workspace works against you. I'd be willing to bet that's true. In the sense that I'm talking about, the work, your workspace is so important. It's so important. And so many people that I know who want to have it work for them just haven't taken that, you know, that helicopter view look to see whether or not it's working against them. And Do you even work at your desk much anymore? Or is it mostly in this World War One? bed that you've got there it's mostly on the bed but only because it's freezing cold it's freezing yeah. cold here on may the 20th it's freezing cold so i can't i have a desk out in the other room and it is just fine for working it is just it works just fine for working it's just i'm sitting out there and slowly freezing to death in late may is not only going to be uncomfortable but it's going to get me irritated i'm going to be thinking gee it is so weird that it's cold here when it should be 30 degrees warmer and either one of those things either slowly freezing to death or being angry about something both of those things work against what you it, everything has to be pared away so that you are one with the work and you're not if if a part of your mind is thinking god almighty the seat underneath me where i'm doing the work is so yeah. substandard or if a part of you is thinking ah oh, this tape bothers <clears throat> You might think, I've banished it from my mind, I'm so used to it, but you haven't. You haven't. It's, it's, uh, it's dragging. It's, it's causing a little bit of drag on the hull. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been looking at desk chairs on Office Max, and I was flirting with, the, with one, but it's like th uh, $300 value. It's on sale for like $119, but when you look at the reviews... It's because people are saying this is the most difficult piece of furniture they've ever assembled. Oh, my God. And a number of people are saying they assembled half of it and just returned it. Because they couldn't keep going? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I don't know if I want to take... Because it looks plush. It looks like it's made of marshmallows and leather. Oh. And Well, it works. Different things work for different people. I've, I've known so many workspaces. I've seen so many of them and seen all the different varieties that work. Some people... It looks like nobody works there at all. That I don't understand. But other people know my my workspace is. <laughs> I don't know why you say it looks minimal. I don't think it looks minimal to me. Oh no, not this one. But you, I forget what you were doing recently. But you did something like a tour of your actual desk. Oh, the desk. And you were talking about how you used to have the reference works, but um, it it looks almost like the entire scene that you displayed. It looks like someone carved it out of a, a block of soap. Um. It just looked all of a piece. It looked like the books were extensions of the desk. And it looked like you had a very shallow 
space on that desk between where well, yeah, the pile of books computer. ended. Yeah. The space is only Do you for work computer. there much? It's not, I, it's not for writing at the desk anymore. I don't think I ever did writing at the desk, even before the computer. It was a typewriter. So I never needed much space. It's not a big desk. I don't have the, I don't have any books on the headspace anymore. I did I I removed them and then I thought, eh, this is too much room. <laughs> but but I don't I don't use that anymore. Instead, if if the day is marginally warm enough for me to use the couch out in the other room, then I'll do that. But I I make a, a little challenge to myself of thinking, okay let's say the the whole morning routine is done. I've, I've taken Frida outside. I've checked the, done the morning's emails and whatnot. Now it's time to work. Now it's time to do some work this morning, a chunk of work before I want to play with Frida or Walker again, or where I want to deal with emails again, or the mail when it used to come. Let's say there's a, now that I'm done with the overnight emails, I'm done with all of that. That's all settled. The inbox is empty. Now I'm going to do a chunk of work. I always like to, to sort of challenge myself to say, okay, well, don't fetishize. Don't, if, if you say, all right, I'm going to work out there and I'm going to work on that couch and there's nothing there now. Don't leave, you don't leave anything there now. You clean up after yourself so that there's blank spaces, blank shelves, everything, instead of a pile of detritus from the day before. So it's all cleaned off now. The impulse is to say, all right, well, I've got these six things I want to do. Let's pick them all up, all the stuff that needs to happen, the notebooks, the books, whatever, and bring it all out there. And that is wrong. That is the wrong thing to do. For me, that's the wrong thing to do. So I always make, for that chunk of work, I say, okay, I'm just going to sit. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not going to do any, I'm not going to bring anything at all. I'm just going to sit with a laptop computer. How much work can I get done before I need anything? and a couple of hours worth of work. It's usually all the rest of that stuff is unnecessary. It's just a distraction. It's just, you, you're, I'm building in my mind a whole bunch of things that I want to do that don't end up getting done. Better by far to just, I, I don't know how, how interesting that is, but you can cut it. No, it, no it, I relate to it tremendously, especially because now I'm editing the first draft of a novel and nothing Nothing elicits a, a deeper sigh than when I scratch out an entire page of prose. There's something about reduction that is just so liberating. I find it even the case when I'm editing the podcast. If it looks forbidding, um, you know, the audio file in the beginning, I'll just say, okay, just so it's not as intimidating, let me take out all the obvious dead air. And automatically I've reduced it by a fifth and it's more manageable. Um, so yeah, I totally see what you're saying. Just sit, sitting down at the desk with nothing on it. And just embarking and seeing what you can do from that from yeah, that position of zero. Do. I'm working on uh, three books in 2020 uh, with other people, and I'm not striking anything. My problem is just the opposite. My problem is is I, I'm I'm driving my my poor battered old Studebaker up to the service station, saying, "Fill these tires as thick as they can go. Just keep pumping, <laughs> pump as much as you can." You've mentioned this a number of times, uh, vague references to, to books that you've worked on. Are you ghosting? What exactly are you doing? Difficult to say what it is. Difficult to say. I don't know. Are you privy to, this, to the discussions? My understand. my impression is that your relationship with the Christian Science Monitor is your closest that you have with any of the outlets for which you write. Is well, that the case? closest, yeah, because I walk in. I go, I go to... Oh, that's right. 
I get to meet everybody. That's it, it's, okay. That makes a huge difference, at least for me. But so, it are you then, are you then privy? I would imagine, yeah. I, uh, are you then privy to sort of conversations about, you know, uh, how much they're bringing in from print? Maybe not hard numbers, but at least percentages. How much they're bringing in from print versus digital? And would something like this really influence their bottom line all that much? Because I, I don't think I've seen many hard... In my life, I don't think I've seen many hard copies of the Christian Science Monitor. No, not anymore. No, I don't I don't think that... I don't, I don't think that anyone would tell me to leave the room if that subject came up and why would anybody talk about that with me i don't think it's ever come up with me people talk people say i just read this book is it any good <laughs> okay not i have to say well should we start with whether or not you liked it and they say no no you're the book guy is it any good did i waste my time <laughs> stuff like that but not i wouldn't know i have no idea okay i think i think i've read that that a lot of major newspapers are doing well with their paywall subscriptions their online electronic subscriptions have gone up because people can't get them and i think i think aided by the fact that so many of them had said our coronavirus coverage will be free even if we normally have a paywall you'll have access to all of that and i think that is incentivized as a gesture of good faith it's incentivized a lot of people to buy yeah and to get a lot of times with periodicals you just have to get people to know whether or not they like it and then you'll have them yeah as a reader even if i at at the monitor i am behind a paywall uh, uh, yes, I think I know. I exhaust. I think the five or six free articles they give you per month, I exhaust those looking at your material. Yeah, but I don't think it covers everything. No, it doesn't. Is that Sometimes more than you do in a month? No, uh, I'm hoping that in June it will. <laughs> but yeah, but you never know. The schedules change all the time. So, uh, and as I've pointed out before, a little bit reluctantly. There are other worthwhile things to read in the monitor. It's not just me. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to confess I haven't really explored it. But um, you did just raise a topic that I had wanted to get to. Um, you mentioned that like people will say to you, hey, I just read this book. Was it good? And then you say, did you like it? And they say, no. Well, you tell me, was it good? I was thinking, I remember it's happened a lot in you making remarks about books that I love and then you... You don't just say that they're bad. You explain why they're bad. And then I think, oh, shit, it's actually bad. Uh, but I remember... Yeah, I get that a lot the... from people. I used to. When I would go to the newsroom or the monitor, I would get that a lot. People, I would say, how, how was your weekend? What did you read? And people would say, well, my weekend was good, but I don't want to tell you what I read because you might tear it apart. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. You might tear it apart. I have to tell people, it's important to me that you enjoyed it. I'll only tear it apart if you ask right. me to. I won't. Well... I, I was going to say that the formative change here is <clears throat> when you did, uh, oh my God, the, the most horrific autopsy on the road. Um, and you, I, I think it was over the course of four. Four videos. And then, I completely destroyed it. I left nothing. And then what heartened me, though, what surprised me is the legion of people who made videos <laughs> just taking their copy of the road into the street and saying, I stand with I the road. I stand with the road. <laughs> they went into the road to do it. You know, and a, a number but, of those people said every one of your criticisms is valid, and I still like this book, and that is exactly what I want. That is, I, that is, yeah, the perfect response to do. What I don't want to hear from people is you don't understand this, and therefore the things you said were flaws, aren't. I don't want to hear that about the road or anything right. else. I don't want to hear that about anything when it comes to books. I don't want somebody to look me in the face and say. Well, I hear your criticism, and it's probably just that you didn't understand it. 
<laughs> because if right. you make me, I will demonstrate that I understood it. And it won't be pleasant. But that that down of the road is an example of what I can do to every book that I say is a piece of crap. I'm not flying by the seat of my pants for any of it. And every single right. thing I said about that book was completely unanswerable. No McCarthy but. dude bro could say, no, there is an explanation for that. No, that does make sense but just what so many people did they have to say okay i grant all of that but i like it anyway <laughs> that's fine i have no problem with that and I you know what that had never occurred to me that it never occurred to me that you know a reader has license to do that of course they do i read it's so i, I've read I don't know why i felt so embarrassed novel that's ever been written <laughs> all the novels that were written about the tv show smallville i read them all and i love them all how many were there oh about 20 thereabouts jesus and I read them all. And I love them all. Do I defend them all? No. I don't defend them at all. Not in the slightest. No, I just love them. I read them and love them. The thing that the 21st century has to understand, which is difficult to do because mommy and daddy are lawyers, it, the, the thing that the 21st century needs to understand is just because you like something doesn't mean it's critically, objectively great. Okay? I know that mommy and daddy got together with all the, the other mommies and daddies in the cul-de-sac and threatened the school with legal action if Harry Potter wasn't taught to you in school, but that doesn't make Harry Potter teachable. <laughs> it just means your parents are bullies. That's all. That's all that means. It doesn't. It wasn't a literary victory. It was a legal victory. That's all that the 21st well, century has to understand. Just because you like it doesn't mean it's good. You can tell me that you like it, and I will listen until the cows come home. I love hearing it. Speaking of that road thing, yes. you've mentioned a lot in the past that you had that mentor who sort of ushered you into reading. Yes. And I'm wondering, is there a title that stands out in your mind of like, this was the first time we butted heads, where you just felt this book was amazing and that guy was telling you, no, it's garbage, but you stood up for it or? No. No? It was always on the same page? Yeah. I learned the page okay. from him. Okay. It was it was necessarily on the same page, yeah. and it was mainly it was <laughs> mainly the way to read, more than what to read. So, I don't think there would have been much of a possibility of us being on a different page. It was it was mainly the way to read. The, the that differentiation between critically praising something and just reacting to it is, you know, once you've got that in place, if both people have that then they can't butt heads. Right? I mean... Has the road forked at all in the ensuing years where... You and I could not butt heads. We both have that distinction in mind. Most good readers, they're not threatened if you if you tear apart something that they like. Right. They only get threatened if, if they think you're tearing apart something that they thought was critically good. I was just working on a script for a podcast kind of about this... Something to do sort of with the only full novel I've read of Sam Delaney is Hog. And <laughs> it was, I was thinking about reading that because of something else that I had seen earlier. And also, I've got to watch um, Pasolini's 120 Days of Sodom for the list. And I just, I remember reading Hog in college and thinking, like, is this an immoral erection? Because <laughs> some of the graphic, horrific sex scenes. That's. I think it's the only time it's ever happened with me in a book of having a physiological reaction, and then putting the book down and in, and contemplating that physiological reaction. And it reminds me of what I read something from the book designer. Do you remember that book Tampa from a couple of years ago? 
about the middle school teacher female who has yes. a sexual a, the hardcover of that was like fur or a kind of pseudo velvet material I do remember and they said that. the the intention was that your hands start to sweat and it starts to feel sticky like it's kind of seductive and fluffy in the oh, beginning but as you go on reading it your hands feel dirty and it's supposed to complement the subject matter um <laughs> i like that book did you i think i remember liking it yeah just liking it not not particularly loving it right uh, but that sort of stuff always leaves me high and dry so to speak <laughs> yeah you have you have mentioned that erotica has never done it never done it for you in the same way that no. horror has never done anything no. for you no it's impossible for me to forget the venue i don't know why but yeah horror has been a, my reaction to horror has just been the disappointment of every movie lover i've ever been friends with so they just try to outdo themselves all right well there's this new movie it's in the theater right now don't learn anything about it i'm not going to tell you anything about it but this one is gonna scare you Genuinely, you're going to jump just when everybody else in the audience does. And it never does. It never works. I'm always remembering that there's a guy filming this. That these actors had to learn their lines, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> well, there's a wonderful three or four minute video on YouTube of um, sort of local news footage of people staggering out of The Exorcist oh, really? in 1974. Oh, that was filmed? Somebody filmed that? I heard, I've read the accounts of it, but I didn't know there was any film of it. Although I had an old friend who had all sorts of conspiracy thinking about that and about Blatty as an author. I have an old friend who would go on and on about Blatty's uh, history in counterintelligence ops and his history with oh the very beginnings of LSD and all that um, NK Ultra, all that, all the sort of government mind control. That this old friend said that there was no, it was no coincidence, and it had nothing to do with the filmmaking that audiences were staggering out of the movie theater, that they were experiencing epileptic seizures or intense vomiting and being surprised. He referenced how many audience members were interviewed after having spewed on the sidewalk and said, I am surprised. I have seen combat or I have seen many, many horror movies. I don't know why this affected me. And this friend said, well, the, the movie was designed to do that. It wasn't, it wasn't because of, the content it was something else again completely watching interviews with blatty is so cringy watching interviews with him in the 70s where he's stroking his chin and you know a, a, a two fingers set gently on his temple as he pontificates um you did tell me once that you had sort of a slack-jawed reaction to jurassic park right i was stunned by it but in a little kid kind of way okay it wasn't it wasn't a, oh my god my life has been changed it was okay. it was I was just, I was stunned by how happy I was, by how happy it made me. I was, I, I, when I saw that, that unbelievably great final scene where the T-Rex rears up from killing the Velociraptors and is about, you know, it's about to give out the mother of all triumphant bellows as the banner falls down saying when dinosaurs ruled the earth, that moment just had me flashing back to every crappy Ray Harryhausen dinosaur footage that I'd ever seen and I was remembering it vividly I, remember, I was remembering them as if they were side by side and thinking I have lived long enough to see this done well and that was that was just terrific <laughs> that was just just terrific I loved it 
I had so much fun with that movie when it was in the theaters. I had so much. I watched it many times. I also sang its praises as just tremendous fun of a movie. Just tremendous fun. So the kind of fun that you could that you didn't have to be ashamed of seeing, of of enjoying. It didn't have any deeper import. It was just tremendous fun. I, used to, I had so much fun with that. Uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't the same way. I. I mean. Well, like people who see Inception or whatever and come away thinking, oh, my God, my whole reality scheme has been redone. I don't, I've never felt anything like that. I didn't have that. I had something like that toward the beginning of the project. I watched Winchester 73 with uh, Jimmy Stewart and I forget the name of the villain. But um, the, the structure of that movie really stayed with me of just it, it's. And where it's, it, where are you now? In right now, I'm in I'm in the mid '70s, and I think that was like 1952, 53. So you you're in the mid '70s. So you have or have not is the man who shot Liberty Valance on the list? Is that over with? Yeah, you already saw that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, had to be a crap. I wasn't crazy about it. What? <laughs> no, when in, if you go through John Ford's movies, I way prefer The Quiet Man, which I think was not long before that. Um, I don't know. I have str- I have weird feelings about Jimmy Stewart. I really loved Rope, and I don't know if it was the gimmick or what. Um, God, I feel like I just watched a Jimmy Stewart one, but I really I like him a lot. I think Henry Fonda has been one of my favorite actors. You weren't impressed by the man who shot Liberty Valance? Not particularly. Hmm. Well, I'm assuming I'm assuming that the shootest is not on your list. It is not. No. That's uh, is that good? Oh, oh, I love it. I love it so much. Really? And Jimmy Stewart is fantastic in it. It's Wayne and Stewart again. Wayne and Stewart, yeah, for the last time, and it's Jimmy Stewart is just amazing as as a doctor he doesn't have a big part but his part is incredibly memorable <laughs> just incredibly memorable the, the work the, the material that they were given in that movie that everybody was given is just i don't know why it's not it's not more venerated than it than it is because there isn't a bad note in it anywhere that's i love it i just love it i mean all, all it's going to take is for some tarantino or villeneuve to mention it in an in an interview and it'll be resuscitated uh when you when you mention jimmy stewart something that always comes to mind is in scott Iman's biography of his friendship with henry fonda he mentions how when jimmy stewart was flying a plane during world war ii a bullet came up through the floor of the plane and it went out the ceiling and when he landed he was blue because of the cold and i had no idea that when the fighter planes were up so high if they are exposed to the open air that it's almost freezing temperatures yeah that's that was the point of the visceral contrast uh, with the pilots who dropped the atom bomb, where they one of the things that they all noted was that the floor was hot, the floor of, of their cockpit was hot, and that that was a drastic change bomb? from because of the bomb, yeah, and that that was a drastic change from from what it was usually. But the in in the shooters, Stewart and Wayne have just this this easy camaraderie just there's no way to do it there's no way to create that 
by a director saying, hey, give me that. It, that's a, a particular kind of movie magic that only happens that one way. So there are scenes, they have two scenes together and their, their scenes are just amazing. Just amazingly good. It's like it's like you've got these two who are such old professionals that they don't need to prove anything to each other in their scenes. So instead, it's, in in those scenes, I mean, it's, it's a very good movie, but it is still a movie. Except for those scenes, you feel like you're you've dropped out of the movie and you're just watching these two characters, and you just happen to be seeing what they're saying, and they don't know you're there, which is kind of kind of strange kind of kind of surreal and very simple they take a very simple dialogue where jimmy stewart tells john wayne's character that you're as strong as you have the constitution of an ox and then john wayne's character describes the physical symptoms that he's been having and Jim, jimmy stewart's character says well take your long johns off and he tells him bend over the examination table in your long johns and john wayne looks at him and he says trap door down which is something if you've never seen Long John's, you wouldn't even know what he's talking about. Yeah, the two buttons. Yeah, it means the... that we, we're given a very clear idea of what Jimmy Stewart's character has to do. And it goes no further than that. It's no more explicit than that. And in the next scene, Jimmy Stewart's character tells John Wayne, you have a cancer and it's, it's bad. And John Wayne's character says, can you cut it out? And Jimmy Stewart's character says, I'd have to gut you like a fish. And John Wayne's character is upset. He's upset. And he's, he's, he gets a little pouty. And he says, I thought you said I had the constitution of an ox. And Jimmy Stewart's character says, well, even an ox dies. And it's all very simple. It's all one sentence lines. And yet, oh, just, just tremendous. The, the, the rest, shit, that, that, must, that was not long before Wayne died Wayne was dying of cancer, right? of cancer, yes, when he did this movie. Oh, Everybody really? on set knew it. That's what gives it so much all the scenes so much power is that the, at the same time that his character on camera is saying, don't fuss out. He's telling Lauren Bacall's character, don't fuss over me. I don't make a fuss. I, I can still handle certain basic things. The whole time that he was saying that on camera, he was also saying that off camera. Was the shoot is the eighties? Uh, I want to say the late seventies, but it could be, no, I don't think it was the eighties. Okay. I don't think it was the eighties. No, had to be the late seventies. You, know, you get some Scott of that Hyman with is... uh, with Rooster Cogburn too, because you've got Wayne oh, yeah. and Hepburn who have been at this so long. They weren't friends like him and Jane Fonda, uh, uh, Henry Fonda, but they, they still know exactly what they're doing. The both of them know exactly what they're doing in any scene, and that, that shows that the the timing is just perfect in a way that it's not. It's not a bad movie. It's got a lot of other good people in it, but they outclass everybody. I, I was I was remiss to prod you about this because I figured you would group it under dude bro, but I got with this vibe that you're describing of sort of veteran war dogs interacting on the stage is the vibe I got with the Irishman in a lot of it. Yes. But without the good material. Yeah, the vibe is there definitely. Sometimes the vibe is there, but the vibe isn't. It's enough. not what you're describing. The no. vibe is right. It's not what you're describing. I mean, look at look at if you're looking for just the vibe, but without good material, what about Cocoon? <laughs> You've got all these Hollywood great actors that just don't have material, you know. So you could delight in their presence on the stage on on the screen, but they're not given anything to do. It's or, or and you get the 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 other end of that you get with like on Golden Pond. Where, what is that? The what now, huh? 
the movie on Golden Pond. I've never, I've never heard of it. You've never heard of it. No. What was the name of the series? The series Steve detests Alex. Steve is appalled by me. Appalled that by must me. be our our new podcast name. Steve is appalled by appalled by me. <laughs> I was merely going to mention that the unfortunate mere mortal who is caught in between Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn in On Golden Pond is Jane Fonda. So, and she is a talented actress and she is blown out of the water. She's ripped to shreds, even when they're not trying to do that. Even when they're both being very generous, it's still painful to watch. Not the, the movie's wonderful, except that she is painfully outclassed throughout. The really? I was really, I was really struck by her performance in Clute. Yeah, no, she's a talented actress, but what are you going to yeah. do? In Henry Fonda's last performance, Catherine Hepburn in as an old, in, as an old actress. The, the, what are you going to do in a situation like that? That's, that's just hopeless, absolutely hopeless. What what is the, what is that last movie where she had to fight to get Spencer Tracy the role because he was dying, and he died he died like two weeks after they wrapped. Yeah, because he was uninsurable. Right, he was uninsurable for uh, uh, guess who's coming to dinner. No, uh, what's it called? The name's gone right out of my head. With Sydney Poitier. I don't know. It's with Sydney Poitier. Then, that sounds. That's then. That might be what it was. Yeah. I guess that was late sixties. Yeah, that's not on the list. That must be what it's um, called. Guess who's coming to dinner? I, I always get that. The, the, it's such a bad title. I always get it confused with Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? But that's a completely different kind of movie. <laughs> completely different married I, I, couple. Uh, Oh, yeah. I remember asking you, can you explain <laughs> this movie to me? Because um, I didn't understand, like, was their child, was he, like, writing a a novel for the two of them about their child and it wasn't real? What movie? Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, yeah. Yeah, good luck. Is that, Is on that your what's list? going on? Surely that's on your list. Yeah, I watched it. And I liked it. And But I at the end of it, I was like, I, I don't even, I don't even want to ask someone if i really understand this i would i just want someone to explain it to me and i can't yeah it's like being trapped inside it. some semi-insane person's train of thought it's just <laughs> i'm sure that i don't understand yeah. it even to even to this day i'm sure that i don't understand it part of i hate elizabeth taylor it might be that that's just giving me a blind spot when i watch it it's guess who's but, coming to dinner and, it, and what you, do you hate about it's, it it's not that it's not that you haven't seen on golden pond it's that you'd never heard about it before tonight. Never. Won like 60 Academy Awards. Look, okay, if you want to look down the list of things that have won Academy Awards and what do we remember, but there's not but, much overlap. But well, this isn't a, a technical thing from the 1940s. This is on Golden Pond. I, I, would, I, I, would, be, I would be 40% appalled that you hadn't seen it, but that you hadn't even heard about it? <laughs> well, you can, you can cut out all the appalled stuff in the final product speaking of products oh, no. when is the next one going to be ready well i'm going to put up the new actual proper podcast tomorrow and then your our our previous conversation will be the next one um, i'm not a proper podcast it's just different because i noticed like i'm get i got like 500 downloads for that previous one good and i know i but i have always hated when i'm like you know, I'm watching a show that I don't normally watch because I want to see an interview with a writer. And sort of the host takes advantage of the fact that they have a captive audience that doesn't normally like their material. So I don't want 
to put you i want my our conversations to be separate from my normal bullshit <laughs> so like if people because i saw in the comments to your video some people were like oh i like this alex guy and that's cool beans and then if lots they of like emails this alex about guy, that too lots of them lots of emails oh, saying good. his voice was wonderful to listen to oh that's nice well then i want that to be like okay if they're if they're coming here for steve let them find steve and if they like alex they can go find him two episodes down. <laughs> um, I don't want to get in the way. I might do a little five-minute intro before them, but I'm not going to integrate it with my little monologues and stuff. So yeah, they're going to be kind of separate. I don't know why I just rubbed my eye and it reminded me. Did you see the footage of Ryan Seacrest last night on the finale of American Idol? No. People have been compiling it and making very earnest tweets about it. And then he didn't show up for his morning talk show gig this morning, but last night he, um, prior to sort of the, I don't know if it was the penultimate or the final performance on American Idol, he's being his Ryan Seacrest self and joshing, and then he's on camera again, and his right eye, his entire right face is collapsed, oh, and he's my. garbling. And Stroke right there on stage. Oh my. Everyone is... That's what everyone was tweeting, and his publicist re released a comment, obviously, saying, no, he's got he's on three talk shows and he does it every day and he's doing it from home he's under a lot of pressure so he just he needed some rest and then this morning because he does kel what is it, the kelly and ryan whatever in the mornings he didn't do it this morning let's hope it's minor um, yeah maybe three days or three weeks he can he can recover completely let's hope it's minor that's a terrifying thing it's just terrifying to think about it's probably terrifying to watch too probably wouldn't be as noticeable as it is in spliced together clips not not like uh, that that interview with Joe Biden where his left eye started filling with blood. <laughs> it's, that was I, I didn't need splice <laughs> clips of that. I didn't need anybody to point it out. I was watching the interview and saying, "Oh my God, his eye is filling with blood." So that, I haven't seen that. Oh God, if you, you, I'm sure you can find YouTube clips of it. By in 15 minutes, suddenly he has one normal eye and one eye that looks like a special effect. It's just all red. It eclipsed the 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 iris and everything just it just filled his whole eye with blood and his team somehow had to talk way out of that somehow just you know these things happen <laughs> <laughs> and, you know the natural response is no they don't no they don't at all that is totally strange that doesn't these things don't happen <laughs> so now the, the i mean when that happened the joke was well will he live to beat Donald Trump, even if even if you grant that he might have a chance, will he live to be able to do it? I'm going to have to look for that Ryan Seacrest footage, and I'm not going to want to see it at all because strokes run in my family. They, I remember you've mentioned in one of your Q and A's you, and it's a nightmare to me. It's just just a just a nightmare to me. Everything else in about my life can continue through good times and bad times but that would stop everything that would stop me from being able to make a living for instance which you know diabetes or whatever would not a heart attack would not stop me from being able to earn a living that would stop me and i yeah it's terrible to think about that oh goodness gracious i'm gonna have to look and see that i'm not gonna want to look at it but i'm not gonna be able to stop myself how often do you have these things where you there there is something online? I, it's, we kind of touched upon it with the re previous conversation where we were talking about kind of like mass shootings. 
the footage that leaks and the photos that leak. How often do you find yourself seeing something in a news item and you say, I don't want to see that, and then you go and you look for it? Usually I don't. Usually I stop myself, especially if it involves the death of an animal. Um, or if I know that it's just going to work me up, that it's just going to enrage me and that not, there's not going to be anything I can do about it, like the shooting of that jogger that was briefly in the news, where, where you know, it, it's an absolute, absolute nightmare scenario. He's doing nothing wrong. He's murdered in cold blood in broad daylight by guys with guns with in a, from a truck bed covered in Trump bumper stickers. It's just the worst nightmare in the world. And I knew that if I'd heard about it, and I knew that it, I knew the footage existed, and I knew that if I went and watched it, I would just be—it would ruin my whole afternoon. So I, as callous as it sounds, I just decided not to do that. <laughs> That's all. Or or animal footage. There's there's plenty of animal footage where I know how it's going to end, and I don't want—I don't want to see it. I can't unsee it, and I also don't want it preying on my mind. Yeah. So I just I just don't do it. That's all. I uh, I just I just accidentally watched started to watch some film footage earlier today. I don't know why it came up in my feed. Uh, of a guy who was at a he was at a zoo I think in China, or maybe Japan, and he thought that the entrance fee for the tiger exhibit was exorbitant, so he snuck in, <laughs> and he didn't. He didn't sneak in area of the park. I think that was probably his intention. Instead, he snuck into the tiger enclosure itself, this, this, which is sculpted to look like just a wooded forest slope with trees and rocks and grass and everything. And Did it kill there him? Were, there were four full-sized adult Bengal tigers in this enclosure. One of them walks up to him, takes him down, and sort of is holding him to the ground by holding his shirt. And another one comes up, and that's when you when you watch the footage. Everybody was filming it. When you watch the footage, that's when you remind you're reminded of how big these things are. They are not as big as mountain lions. They're as big as sofas. It's like it's like the sofa in your living room is walking towards you, and one of them walks towards this guy, and he's kicking at it with his leg. He can't move because one of them has him pinned uh, to the ground by his shirt. So he's laying down and he's kicking at this tiger that's coming close to him and it's working the, the tiger that's coming close to him gets hunks of food thrown over a wall every day it obviously isn't going to fight for its food but the movement of the kicking excites the tiger that is holding his shirt and that tiger sits up the man immediately realizes that he's been released and he starts to rise and the tiger grabs him by the neck which is hunting behavior you break the neck of your prey so that it can't resist you anymore but it's not dead so that you can eat it alive. You can eat it with its body temperature still intact. Oh, the tiger does that to this guy and he starts to flail in agony because he's had, he's had this gigantic thing prized down on his neck. And when he starts to flail in agony, the tiger that has him by the neck wraps a paw around his torso. And it, from a distance when it's filmed, the paw looks like it's big and plush, but you know that it's six inch nails that have gone into him to, to hold him in place. And the, the tiger's holding him like that, and obviously it's waiting for him to asphyxiate or whatever. And then the zoo Gunshots. people started to fire shots, not at the tigers, but to get them to disperse. And they do. They, they are startled, and they all start to run, including the one that was holding onto the man. 
and the man slumps down on the ground with his back to the audience. And then he gets up. He sits up. And the whole, all the skin is hanging down from the whole half of his head. You see half of his face, half of his glasses, and all the rest of it is just, is just bloody bone. Just the whole of his head is with a crowd. A shock just goes through them all when they see that. And you think, oh, wow. All right, so that's the moment. And then the tiger that had, di that had done that runs back into the frame and grabs him by the neck again much more firmly this time so that the, the guy is dead by this point and his body is just shaking like a rag and what, what country was this i don't remember it's china japan something like that uh, i don't think it was america because i think we're specifically told that you have to pay to go into each exhibition and that isn't true in american zoos uh, so but one way or another we're told that the man wasn't dead he just looked it but that he died at the hospital and the tiger also was killed which I guess makes sense because <laughs> yeah. his, his keepers will look just like that man to him. And he now knows what can happen. He now, he now knows what he can do, but I don't know why that got in my feed and it, it was, and I didn't stop watching. So I'm going to see that when that man sat up the first time he was aware he was awake and maybe he could see all the people yelling and filming. Maybe he could see them. Maybe that was the last thing before 400 pounds slammed into the back of his neck a second time and after that nothing and i'm going to remember that that's going to be in my mind now <laughs> i've got a, i've got my baby is agitating to go out and i oh sure. actually how long have we been doing this i i don't have a two hours and 20 minutes oh my god really There goes another episode. I'm recording this at 11.30 a.m. on, what day is it? Thursday morning, May 4th. And at noon, I have to sort of clock into work. The college's summer semester has already started, so I'm back to tutoring online. I have to just sit at my desk between noon and 6 and wait for students to come in. And I'm sorry, incidentally, if the sound of lawnmowers or just lawn maintenance equipment gets into this recording. I don't, it's, it's cool that, like, the landscaping businesses are all back in full swing. But it's so weird because, like, there are, there are a lot of drug dealers in my neighborhood, and there are, like, I don't know, you just see a lot of, like, sketchy shit on the sidewalks and, like, coat hangers that have been extended so that people can, you know, break into your car with it. There's trash in the street, shopping carts on the sidewalk turned upside down and fucked with, people steal the wheels off of them. And yet, every time I, rec I try to record a podcast in the morning, someone is doing their lawn. <laughs> It's just so, it is so weird to live in this fucking crazy sketchy part of town where, like, everything is going to shit, but ev <laughs> but the lawn care is fucking on point. But yeah, another thing that's going to pop up in the next episode is that I went out yesterday, no, two days ago, um, Mary, the subject of that previous podcast called um, What It Hinges On, What It Hinges On, the woman I'd been having these kind of Zoom dates, and we were talking for three and four hours at a time. We were having these very intimate conversations. And then she said, after two months of this, that she wasn't ready to pursue anything romantically. And so I left it at that, and then I didn't talk. We, we just didn't speak for a while. And then she started breaking the silence. She would text me in the evenings, and then she texted me in the afternoon the other day. 
She had the day off of work and she was bored. She wanted to know what I was up to. We just chit chat for a little while and then she keeps kind of, she keeps kind of pressing the, the the fact that she's got nothing to do. And so I was like, "Do you want to come over for a drink?" And she was like, "Well, I would love a drink, but I I still don't know if you're a murderer or not." And I was like, "Yeah, I guess you don't." And so, but I said, "Yeah." So we went to Batch Batch Gastro Pub on Brickle, and we had a really nice time. I had to do something at eight thirty. So, and this was like, I think we met at like five forty-five. No, around six, and um. We hung out for two hours and then she drove me back to my apartment and I'll elaborate on it when the time comes, but I don't know if it was a date. I don't know if she intended it to be a date. Like my apartment was a disaster. So if she did come over here, I'd, I would have had to scramble to try to make it remotely presentable. And also I just didn't, I, it was, I don't know. It was at this point, I'm just kind of like, she's, she's great company. I love talking to her. So it's, you know, if, if none of our conversations have had like an overt sexual or romantic or flirtatious bent to them um i think it's kind of there under the surface even if it is there at all so whatever it, it's good company and um if she wants to take it in a romantic direction we'll see where where it goes from there um this morning i went to arahi's bakery across the street and i got what i normally get which is a hunk of toast and a um and a colada a cuban espresso and i came back and i looked at the toast it looked weird like it didn't but it, it it looked weird but it didn't look weird it looked like it looks every single day but it was i think one of those epiphany day moments where i was like what am i eating every morning it looks like a mummy's labia it's crusty and flesh colored and it's gush I've, I've i made a video about this on instagram about a year ago they fucking they lather their toast with a paintbrush that's how they apply butter to their toast they they open it they dip a paintbrush into a bucket of of liquid butter they they lather the bread and then they put it in a panini and when i've complained about this to some people my hispanic friends they're like that's how you're supposed to do it it's not how you're supposed to or maybe that is how you, <laughs> i'm so ready to be like no 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 we don't we don't do that that's we are all we are all people who want to live anyways yeah i'm oh fuck i got <laughs> i have to go to work I'm so fucking done with this. And it's not that I hate my job at all. Oh, dude, that was another thing. Now my hours got reduced this semester and they were reduced last semester as well. So originally it was like I worked 25 hours a week and then it was 21 hours and now it's 18 hours. And so originally when I was working 25 hours a week, we would stay in the lab until it closed at eight. And then when it was 21 hours a week, we would stay in the lab until it closed at seven. And now we stay in the lab until it closes at six. And every time that new hourly reduction begins, my colleague Jesus and I look at each other and we're like, how the fuck did we ever do this until 8 p.m.? And then the next semester we're like, now we're saying like, how the fuck did we ever do this until 7 p.m.? Because it's just, it, it's wearing on you and wearing on you. And when I mentioned this to my boss, um, he, he was commiserating. He, he gets that same feeling. And I was realizing like, I'm bitching that much about a six-hour workday. And I was thinking, like, if it goes down again, and I'm only working a five-hour shift, and I'm still complaining about it, it's either, I like, I gotta quit. And I'm always thinking, if there is some element of my creative life that's gonna generate an income, it's probably the podcast, but I would have to then become more productive with the podcast. But I always tell myself that I'm working really hard, and I do work hard, I do get a lot of things done. But 
I was telling myself like, oh man, I work so many hours on this fucking podcast. And there's there's no way I could I could generate more. And so I was writing a blog post about like how long each episode takes, and I was like, whoa, each episode takes like fucking ten hours to do. And then I thought about it, and I was like, well, I could do. I should be doing four a week then because part of the blog post is that one of the things that quarantine has done for me has given me the idea of what it would be like to be a professional writer. You know, you set your own schedule, you you do your pages, you hold yourself accountable to things. Like if I could have been treating this, like if I was properly treating this like a full-time job, I would have generated four episodes a week. Although there is the added component of like, it isn't just a matter of putting in the work. It's not like I'm assembling furniture where you just put it, God, you can hear the fucking lawn material, lawn material, lawn tools gardening tools, whatever. Um, it isn't just that I'm assembling furniture. It's like coming up with creative material. And there is an element of discipline there that if you show up to the desk and you keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, you will get an idea. You will generate a monologue. But like, I, I really am at odds with, with people who talk about writing in terms, purely in terms of like inspiration and, and waiting for the muse to grace them. That's not how anything gets done. You sit down and you work until something happens. But there is that vari- that variable of like, I need the ideas. Yes, it takes 10 hours to write, record, and edit an episode, but I don't know when I'm going to get an idea. So I guess this is my way of like excusing myself for not being as productive as I should be. Or I mean, not that I should be fucking working 40 hours a week on this podcast, because I do have this other job, um, and I do, I am writing, I am editing the book, and... Um, trying to read and trying to trying to apparently start a relationship i don't know what is that's you know i'm going i'm bending over backwards i'm contorting i'm bending myself out of shape in order to make something happen romantically like on on some of these dating apps and i'm doing these skype dates whatever but i don't think i want a relationship as badly as i'm pursuing a relationship and i don't think it's loneliness because fucking i'm fine I think I'm fine. I don't know. Okay, this is getting pretty long. Fuck. See, I sometimes when I get into like a flow with the epilogue thing, which seldom happens. I don't know why this is a particularly hard part to record. But um, when I get into a flow, I'll talk forever. And then I have to remind myself like, fuck, I have to edit this. Um, I also have to go to work. I was just listening to a conversation with Kevin Smith and he was talking about how like when he would go to see, when he would go to the movies with his dad to see things like you know Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars or whatever his dad would light up and he would really enjoy them and he said I felt like that was the only time I got to see my dad for who he really was because he worked the night shift and before in the hours getting ready to go work the night shift at the post office he was fucking miserable he hated his job and he was super dour and he complained about it and um He's like, so when I saw that wonderment in his face uh, at the movies, it was like, oh, this is what my dad would be like if he didn't have have to work every day at a shitty job. And that's kind of coming to mind, too, when I think about the attitude I take toward my work. Like, this work at this college gig is sweet, 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 and I should not complain about it at all. It isn't really taxing. It's just the idea of, like, having to sit here all day. But the prospect of going back to a fucking restaurant, like, I don't dread it, I don't hate it, but it's just... It's a huge drain on energy and time. A friend reached out when I got laid off and she was like, I, I you know, there's a there's a there's a pub back in Pinecrest, the part of town I used to live in, and it's twenty miles away and it would be a sweet gig. It's a really tiny place. Um I, I think their their customer base is probably something like eighty percent regulars. 
uh, maybe more. So it's like the same people coming in at the same time, ordering the same thing, very cheers. And I, I feel like that's the kind of environment I would thrive in if I had to work at a bar, not had to work at a bar. If I had the privilege of working at a bar, I got to change my perspective on this. Fuck dude. I got to go to work in five minutes. Um, I don't know, man. I gotta, uh, yeah. Ideally you want to be like, okay, if you're, if you're talking in a, in a mopey dopey way about having to go to work, you probably shouldn't be going to that work, but life is more complicated than that. Um, Every Instagram post, the same Instagram post that where people tell you that you are traumatized, that's the same kind of shit where people are like, you need to find your bliss, you need to fucking be happy every time you're going to work. But that just seems so unrealistic. Um, yeah, you should sort of adjust the levers and knobs of your life so that you are as happy as possible, um, but... I don't know, man. You know what? I think that dude is cranking up his leaf blower to tell me to shut the fuck up. I gotta go to... Uh, I gotta go to work. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.